Amen. Good morning, church. How's everybody? Y'all all right? We good? Good, 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 good. Um, if you would, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to go ahead and read the passage um, that I'm going to allow, try to allow the Lord to speak this morning from First uh, John chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. It reads like this. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, right now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he is righteous, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Father God, we thank you for your word, O God. I pray, Father, that you would speak in this very moment, God, through me. I pray, Father, you would give me conviction of heart, God, clarity of mind and concision of speech, God. I pray that. Um, You would give us all listening ears, Father, for what your spirit has to say. God, go and do what only your spirit can do with this word. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 You may be seated. So January 6, 2021, um, I'm sitting in my office and I'm not doing much work. It's late and... I start getting all these texts that come to my phone. Um, First, one friend texts me, and they're like, hey, you know, have you seen seen this? Are you watching this? And then I got another group text message that was like, you know, what's going on? Like, are y'all watching this? And so I turn to my computer, and I turn on, you know, the news, and I see this sight. I see people rushing the capital of the United States of America. We have U.S. citizens rushing the capital of the United States of America, um, attempting to break in. And as I later learned, they were trying to stop the congressional hearing that was going to verify the 2020 election. 
Now, the odd thing about this was that if you talk to these people, if you interview them, if you ask them questions, they probably would say that they're deeply American, right? They would say, yeah, I'm, I'm an American. And they may go as far as to say, I'm more American than most people, than most other people. But the reality was that their actions that day were not American. Their actions were sort of, well, not sort of, they were anti-American. Now, before you, you can relax. This is not a political message. Before you get, you know, on, on your political horse, it's, it's really just an illustration. Because I believe we as Christians, if you ask most of us, hey, are you a Christian, right? Most of us would say, yeah, you know, I am. I'm a Christian. I, I, I believe in the grace of God. But I think sometimes our actions are not really reflective of what we really truly feel that we believe. Right? In a survey that Barna did in 2016, it says, essentially, America, and they also lump in Christians into this term, Americans, right? Christians as well have adopted a new moral code, okay? These are the six tenets that they, they, they surveyed, they got the responses back, and these are the six tenets that are a part of the new moral code in America. All right, follow these with me. The first one, the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. Number two, people should not criticize someone else's life choices. Number three, to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. This is the new moral code that, that, that we're living. Number four, the highest goal of life is to enjoy it as much as possible. That's the, that's the chief end of life. Number five, people are free to believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society at large. That's number five. Number six, any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. Those are the six tenets of the new moral code that is by and large accepted by, by Americans. Now again, um, the report it goes on to say that there's, there's pretty much confusion right now between um, what is the moral code that Christians should live by and Americans should live by. Um, most Christians believe the Bible is the source of moral norms that transcend a person's culture, yet at the same time, they surveyed all these Christians and over 70% of the Christians ascribe to five of the six tenets of the new moral code that the world has adopted and is living by. The reality is that we cannot really call ourselves Christians and completely discard how we live. Now, I think in some circles, like probably is maybe the case in, in a circle like this, um, we have misinterpreted Paul's doctrine on grace. Um, we know that we are, in fact, saved by grace 
through faith. There's nothing that you and I can do to garner God's favor, right? God has to graciously draw us with his love. And then Jesus is the only sacrifice or he is the only provision for sin, right? So it's not based on our works or our effort that we are indeed saved. It is based on the person and the work of Christ and God and his goodness giving us that provision. However, we do still have to live a life on the earth after we are brought into the body of Christ, right? So how we live still matters is the point. Matthew 5:13 says, "We are the salt of the world." So we are the, the salt in a dying and decaying world, but it says, "If the salt has lost its saltiness, this is my translation. If the Christians have left has lost their differentness, then what good are we then? If you have lost the thing that indeed makes you different in the world that God has ordained to preserve the morality of the world, what good are we doing then, right? So in in this age, it's common and it's understandable in some places. Um, We have this this idea that we are supposed to be as non-offensive as possible. And some of that bleeds over into how we actually live our lives. We feel as though, hey, I don't want to be too, you know, on the holiness train. You know, we, we stop wearing the long skirts and the, and the whatever else that made us holy, but we've completely thrown off the idea that how we live actually matters. Don't be fooled. This passage is telling us, do not be fooled. What we do actually reveals our true alliances, right? So the question becomes, how do we align our actions with our allegiance to Christ? Or how do we show through how we live that we are in allegiance with Christ? In the context of this passage in 1 John, so John, obviously this is John who was the disciple of Jesus. John is writing this passage in his old age. He had pastored a group of people. And, you know, John, he, he terms himself the, the, the beloved disciple of Jesus, the disciple who Jesus loved, right? And so John is writing to his church, and there have been people who, have, who were in John's church, but who have since left John's church. And they're coming back, and they're infiltrating the, those who have stayed with this false doctrine. So the ones who, are, who have left, they're called the successionists. They have left, and they have... Um, progressed, quote-unquote, in their knowledge. And so they're coming back and they're telling uh, the ones who have stayed, they're saying, hey, we got this new, it's really early Gnosticism. They get a body of knowledge, they, they learn this special knowledge, and by this special knowledge, they're going to be able to be saved. So essentially they're saying, only thing you have to do is get this knowledge about God. Right? If you get this knowledge... You're good. You, you know what to do. You don't, you don't have to live a certain way. Um, I'm, I'm simplifying this a lot because Gnosticism was, it was an early form of Gnosticism. Um, but it still was the, pretty much the same thing. They just believed, hey, I just need to get this information and then I'm good. Because they thought that it was so many realms in the afterworld 
and they just needed this information to be able to navigate through all these realms to get to the highest realm. So they go back and they're telling those who were a part of their church, they're telling them, hey, stop worrying about sin. We, we don't have to worry about sin anymore. It doesn't matter how you live. Just get this knowledge. But John vehemently refutes that, that logic. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Right. So the question then becomes, again, how do we live and allow our actions to show our allegiance to Christ? Point number one, we have to see the beauty of the love of God. Look at verse one with me. It says, see. So John uses an imperative right there. And it's in the second person. He's basically saying, hey, you all look. Hey, look, look at this. Look at what kind of love the father has given to us. He says that we should be called the children of God. He's saying, listen, everything needs to start here. He's saying, pause everything. Look at the love God has given to us. This should capture us. He is the father of all mercies. This is what Second Corinthians says, that God is rich in mercy. He's saying, stop and look at how the father has loved us, that we should be children of God. It's amazing that we as sinners, right, we as people who have transgressed the law of God, we as people who are completely deserving of the wrath of God, we as people who have done literally everything to turn away and run from God, we are those people and God still comes after us. God is still merciful towards us. His heart towards us is that of love. He's trying to get us to look at the love of the Father. There's a theologian that is, um, he's, he's an old theologian, um, but I'm going to quote him. It says, he says, as large and, and as various as our wants, so large and various are God's mercies. So we may boldly come to find grace and mercy to help us in the time of need. He has a mercy for every need. All the mercies that are in his own heart, he has transplanted into several beds in the garden of his promises in the, in the word of God, where they grow. And he has abundance of variety suited for every disease of the soul. God has a mercy for every single malady that we face in this life. There are people in here right now who are dealing with health, all type of health conditions. There are people who are dealing with all type of relational strife. Some of us, like me, are just trying to figure out how to raise girls. That, I think that's harder than all that knowledge is playing. Some of us are trying to figure out how to navigate purpose. We're trying to run businesses, run families parent, adult, children, God has a mercy for every single situation that we ever will face. He has a mercy for that. And that's evidence in his son, Jesus. Our biggest problem was our sin. And that was the mercy that we needed. So how much more will he provide for all of the mercies 
that we, all of the other situations that we'll face in life. Ephesians 1.5 says, and this is my translation, it says, having predestined us for sonship for himself through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. This is in the middle of Paul's prayer in the book of Ephesians where he is telling us how God orchestrated the events of the history of this world to save us. And right here in the middle of that passage, he uses this word eudokia, which literally means good pleasure. So that passage is saying he predestined us. So it was before the foundation of the world, God predestined to save us through Jesus. And the thing that motivated him to do that was pleasure. God did it because he wanted you. He, he took pleasure in constructing this gospel plan to come and save our lives from sin, from, from, from sin in the world, our own sin. He, he constructed it, and he did it for his own good pleasure. That should strike you. God is a God who wants you. He didn't do it begrudgingly. He wasn't, his arm wasn't twisted. It was according to the good pleasure of his will. He loved us that much. He was like, I want them so bad that this is what I'm going to do in order to save them. I'm going to send the son that I love, okay, the son that I love down to the earth to become a man, an ugly man too, is what Isaiah said. He was ugly. He could have took on a nice spot. He was ugly. He's like, I need him to go down here, and I need the beauty of his spirit to win them. I don't, I don't want it to be because of any. They need to see the beauty of who he is. They need to see the beauty of the heart of Christ. And it's that heart of God, and it's that heart of Christ that draws us. That is the power of the gospel. It draws us to him. I love the story in Genesis 22 of Abraham and Isaac, and I saw it in a new light this week as I was preparing for this sermon. So we know that God gives Abraham the command to take his son. Now, he had waited almost 100 years to have this promised son, right? And God finally gives old Sarah, who is way past her childbearing age, and gives old Abraham this promised son. So think about how he would have valued that son, right? Think, get in the mind of Abraham right now. He's waited forever, waited super long for his son to come, and he finally comes. And then one day God says, all right, get up, get Isaac. I need you to go up here and offer him up as a sacrifice. Now, the thing that is extremely odd about this passage, if you read it, is Abraham does not at all object to God's request for him to go and sacrifice his son. If you read the passage, it it says literally, Abraham began to pick up wood. Abraham got his youth, told them to to load up the donkey. Abraham got his knife. Abraham packed up his stuff. And Abraham walked three days. For three days, he had to think about the fact that I'm about to go up here and murder my son, the one who I love and the one who I waited over 100 years for. See the picture of God in that. It wasn't begrudgingly that he gave his son for us. It wasn't like somebody had the force. He, he, he took pleasure in doing it. Wow. 
because he wanted us that bad. That was the picture. Obviously, it's a Christ-like picture, too, of Isaac. Isaac could have fought, but Isaac went willingly also. Many commentators say Isaac was a, a young man, like, you know, able to withstand Abraham if he wanted to. Right. He could have not gotten on the altar, but they both went willingly. It shows the heart of both Christ and God and how they willingly gave their life, gave, gave Christ's life for us. So John is saying, look at that. When you see the beauty of Christ, when you see the beauty of the father, rather, and you see his heart, it changes you. That is the knowledge that we need. We need to know a love that melts away all of the sinful, hard, wicked places of our hearts and draws us outside of ourselves into the love of Christ, into a different being. Second Corinthians 3, 18 says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, that is the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. The image in this passage is that of us and our sanctification. It's the same thing that John says in verse 4, or excuse me, in, yeah, in verse 3. He says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so as we look on the love of God and we see the beauty of God, the Father who loves us, who gave his life for us, it begins to change us. As we view that, as we look upon that, that's what changes us. Point number two is we have to practice confession of sin. This is is a tough one because... It's not natural for us to want to do this, right? It's not natural for nobody wants to say, man, I want to figure out all the ways I'm wrong today. Like, that never happens. Like, we, we resist this. The nature of sin is to make us ignorant of sin. Yeah. And so we have to have instruments of sight. We have to read the Bible. So we, man, I look at that and I see the things I'm doing wrong. You need to have community. You got to have people around you that are not afraid to tell you the truth. You need to be a person of truth. Truth and love, but you need to be a person of truth. Confession has to be a regular part of our life. Look at verses 7 through 9. It says, little children, let no one deceive you. Notice how John is using that term of endearment. He's not scolding them here. He's lovingly wanting to invite them into something. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now, what does that mean? Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. What does it mean to practice righteousness? So we know that we will not be perfect on the earth, right? But the term that John uses here is practice. What is the practice of righteousness? The Bible has a word for what the practice of righteousness is, and it's repentance. That is practicing righteous, righteousness, rather. And it says, if we practice that, we're going to be as he is. So there's always a gap between what we know and what we actually do, right? That gap is where repentance happens. 
if we fail to continue to continually confess sin, then we have ceased to look at the beauty of Christ. So if we're not continually looking at, and this is not to say like, oh, I need to obsess over my sin, but there does need to be a regular pattern of confessing of sin. If we're not looking at that, then we're going to lose the need of Christ. We no longer need him anymore. Right? Because right? if we're not confessing sin, we're saying, hey, I don't have any issues, and so therefore that, that negates the need of Christ. So we look at Christ, as we look at the beauty of Christ, we see our own flaws, our own imperfections, and we live a life that is constantly repenting of that way, right? Of the ways in which we are not like God. Now, this is a message for those of you who may not be Christians, okay? It is not possible for you to be a Christian and to practice sin. This is a crosstalk for whoever you want to give it to, right? You cannot live an unrepentant life and say that you are a Christian. Let's talk about it, all right? We family. Let's, let's go to the family table, all right? You've been living with somebody for five years, you know. Y'all got kids together, you know. You, 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 you're... you're you're living a life, you're living in a way that you know is against the will of God and the law of God, but you're calling yourself a Christian. This is what this passage is saying. It's impossible. That's what it's, it says. It's not possible. Now, why is it not possible? It's not possible because John 6 tells us that when we are born again, we are born of the Spirit, which literally means when we are born again, we then get the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit cannot, right? He will not. He is not going, he will not allow you to continue to live that way. Okay? This is not to make you feel bad, but it's just to bring attention to the fact that if you are not, if you do not have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, you may want to check, are you really a part of the body of Christ? Okay? This is the, hey, this is what the text says. So, Send your emails to John, you know, send, say, dear John, I don't agree with, like, how are you going to say that about me? Like, that ain't right. Send your emails to John, like, I, I didn't write this. It's saying that you can't, you can't continue. He won't allow you. And so thank God for the Holy Spirit, right? So for those of us who are believers, this means we need to give him some attention because he's trying to do a work in us. He's trying to purify us. So my question to you is, what has the Holy Spirit been trying to take you away from? What, what is he pulling you out of? And are you, are you allowing him to do that? Or are we fighting with him? Right? Are we wrestling with him? Are we resisting the pull? Right? If we do, then, then we're going to be absolutely affected by the culture. How is your practice going? Your practice of repentance? We need to build in some type of pattern. There has to be some type of regularity when it, when it comes, to us, comes to that. The final point is, our knowing God and knowing Christ should lead to our loving. Verse number 10, this is actually the main thrust of what I wanted to say today in this sermon. Verse number 10, it says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God 
But check this last clause. It says, nor is the one who does not love his brother. How does this all connect? So John is trying to make the correlation between what we believe, who our allegiance is with, and then what we do. He's saying that if you're a person who is walking in righteousness, then you're going to do righteous things. If you're not a person who's walking in righteousness, you're going to be walking in sin and doing sinful things. Now, he, he references lawlessness in this passage. What is lawlessness? So lawlessness is like the word suggests, refusing or not being able to keep the law. But the end, of the, the end goal of the law, what is the end goal of the law? The end goal of the law is to make us loving. And that's where I feel like many of us get stuck in trying to walk and please and do the things that God would call us to do. We get stuck on the what should I do instead of the end goal of what, what, what is this supposed to take me to, right? Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, it says, Owe no one anything. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not murder. I'm sorry, excuse me. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So knowledge of God and the law is not an end unto itself, right? It's only a means by which we become loving people. So the law is just, it's supposed to guide us and teach us how to love. That's the whole point. And so in a culture where we are deeply committed to morality, the thing to do is to not say, hey, you know, everybody should be able to live how they want to. That's, that's actually not loving. That's like if I tell my child, hey, you know, Ben, you want to stay up? And let's, let's just stay up and watch, you know, Puppy Dog Pals at night. You know what I mean? We'll just stay up the whole night. You may enjoy it, but that's, that is unloving for me to do, right? It is unloving for me to let you sit up there and eat all the gummy snacks. Like, it don't matter how many, you know, it, it doesn't matter how good it tastes. It's unlo- that's unloving. It's it just it. I'm sorry. This is a, hey, y'all, I know y'all not feeling this mess. I got to just give it to you like how the Lord gave it. It's not, it's, it's not loving. It's not loving anytime you see a person in sin. It is unloving to let that person continue in sin. Because sin is the worst thing for them. It's not, so like we have this whole moral code where we're saying, hey, you know, the best thing to do is just let everybody do what they want to do. People love who y'all want to love. Everybody just, you know, and slowly we see society decaying. And Christians have bought into this idea also. And so we're just affirming, you know, the same moral code that, that, you know, the world has propagated now. The code, you know, to live and let live, which sounds great. But you got to remember, we're supposed to be different. Now, along with this difference, it is going to come persecution. It's part of it. But thanks be unto God that God has overcome the world, right? In the last days, we will be justified. But the reality is we have, to, we have to adhere to what it is that God has said is loving, right? The way that God has said to live, because it does, in fact, matter. You never know 
whose life you're going to impact by the way you live. There are people at your job who are looking to you. You, you are a Christian. They're looking to you to, to figure out how to live. Amen. Our kids, they're looking to us to figure out how to live. The world is looking to us to figure out how to live. They don't have it, right? They, they don't have it. They have to make up and concoct something that is devoid of God. But it is up to us to follow this standard and, and live as an example and as salt for a dying and decaying world. Okay? The whole reason we even care about sound doctrine, back to, I just jumped on my soapbox. I got to get back to my sermon. The whole reason we should care about sound doctrine is for the sake of preserving God's beauty. So the doctrine is just there in place to help us more accurately see the beauty of God. Right? So it's taking us right back to the beginning. See what kind of love the Father has for us. That we should be called children of God. Dane Ortland uses this illustration. He says, doctrine is just um, the way in which we can more accurately see God's beauty. It is like putting an effective focal lens on a camera to capture the precision of the beauty of the thing that we're photographing. It's not about the lens. The lens isn't the improv. We want the photograph, right? The photograph is the beauty of God. We have to be looking and seeing the beauty of God, and then we have to project that, project that beauty out into the world and to other people, and that is what's going to draw people. So it's not morality for morality's sake, right? It's morality for the sake of pointing to a sign, pointing to a person, that person being Christ, being God. Now, let me give you a quick application because, yeah, this just needs to happen. One of the things that I notice happens with myself and other people, so I'm just going to assume that you do this too. That may be a bad assumption, but I'm going to do it anyway. In our relationships, right, usually conflict arises. We have conflict. And then we say, we come to the conclusion that we're right. So say a conflict happens, you know, I've analyzed it, and I'm right. And the other person is not seeing it that way, so we label that person as wrong. And so guess what happens? Anybody? It's dead. Like, the relationship is dead. It's like, yo, like, I'm right and you're wrong. The relationship is dead. It's over. Right? There's, so we have this trail of people who were our former friends, who we, who we formerly hung out with, right? We have this trail of people who are wrong, you know, are, are used to be whatever, you know, our ex whatever. And it's because they're wrong and I'm right. But the truth of this passage is that the end goal was never for you to be right. It was for you to be loving. That's not, the, that's not the end of it. So if in your relationships, if you're always that person that has to be right, oh, no, nah, you're wrong, no, nah, no, nah, no, nah, you know, I, I ain't talking to them no more, no, nah, that's, that's a wrap. You know, like, no, nah, like, not until they come back and be like, you know, agree with what I said, it's dead, right? We can't even talk, we can't have no type of relationship or nothing, it's dead. But what, what are you doing then? You, you have, we have made the end goal rightness. And not love. Y'all ain't got to say amen. That was for me, really, low-key. Because I'd be like that. 
I'd be like, they wrong. That ain't the point, man. The point is, you got to be loving. So think about this. Jesus walked on the earth. Who was more right than Jesus? This man literally knew everything wrong about everybody ever. ever. Right? He walked into the phone. He's like, bro, I can't believe you, bro. <laughs> like, you are dead wrong. Like, you're literally walking in wrongness. The woman at the well, Jesus walks up to her. She tried to play Jesus. Jesus is like, stop trying to play me. You'd have had 12 husbands, you know, like, you're trying to lie to me. But guess what? That wasn't the point. The point was for Jesus to love her. Go back and read the Gospels. Jesus could have slayed everybody. He, sometimes he chose to slay people because he was like, this is what you need, you know, some Pharisees. But even in, even in that, Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees because he loved them. He was trying to show them, hey, you're wrong until I can show you that you can't even come and receive what I have for you. Jesus knew Peter was going to break his heart. Peter says, Lord, never, you're never going to die. You're wrong, Peter. But the goal is not for me to be right. The goal is for me to be. The goal is for me to be loving. When Jesus called Judas, he knew Judas was going to betray him. From day one, why did he call him? Think about, why did he call him? The goal wasn't to be right. The goal was to be loving. Jesus knew all us in here was wrong. If you, if you can't say amen, he knew all of us was wrong. But he came into our life because the goal wasn't to, for him to be right, even though he was right. The goal was for him to be because it's not about being right. It's about being loving. If we're truly going to have an impact on the world, if we're truly going to change the moral climate, I feel like we have to approach it this way. We have to first see how much God loves us. Right? We have to see God for who he is, and we have to keep that within our view. We can never get away from the beauty of God, the Father of all mercy. He's just, if you cut God, he's bleeding compassion, right? If you squeeze him, there's nothing, there's, there's joy, there's mercy coming out on, on either side. He's not a, he's not, wrath and judgment are a part of God, but that's probably the unnatural part of God. The natural part of him, the knee-jerk reaction is mercy towards us. And that's why he illustrates that in his love. What we do, it matters. How we live, it matters. But we can't be a people who simply have cognitive, simply have information, right? Simply just have a cognitive understanding of what the Christian life is or how we become saved by grace through faith in Jesus but we have to adopt the same goal that Jesus had because that is what's going to speak to the world now. Not our rightness, but our love. Pray with me. Lord God, thank you. Lord God, this is a tough word for us, for all of us, for me, for everyone. But I pray, God, that you would give us the grace, Lord. Give us the grace to be able to walk in this word, Lord God. 
Help us to know, Lord God, that you, you haven't left us to do it on our own. But you've given us your Holy Spirit, Father, that dwells within us, God. As we confess our sin, God, and as we live a life of repentance, Lord, I pray that you would fill us even now, Lord God, with your Holy Spirit. Enable us, Lord God, to walk and to live into this calling that you've called us. Lord God, you said, therefore, since we've received all this mercy, God, live and walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Help us, Father God, to embody, Lord God, love to our neighbors, Lord God, to our friends, to our family, Lord God. Help us to know, Lord God, that you're going to be with us and you're going to carry us through this, Father. We love you and we thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. please stand and receive this benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And the church said, Amen.